Oh, I just found a note in my pocket saying, I love you, Dad. It's nice, isn't it? I had to write that myself. Just to <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hello, everybody. How are we today? Nice and warm, a bit better now that we have a beer in our hands or a cider or a soft drink or something like that. This will make this uh, message go down a bit better. <laughs> okay, cool. So, I'm going to be talking about the anointing at Bethany. And so, this story takes place in the days coming up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so, as we're coming up to Easter, this is probably a timely message. That's probably not one that we actually talk too much about when we talk about Easter. And so, hopefully, there's something a little bit different here. Um, plus, this story actually takes place around a table, which is kind of like our overarching theme for this year as well. So, on a couple of accounts, uh, this message should hopefully be uh, nice and relevant. So, I was usually when we start with a passage, we will uh, read out the verse, but rather than read it out, I've actually I thought we'll uh, show a video clip of the actual verse, so we could all get familiar with it that way. Uh, for those that didn't read it, I was posted on the Facebook page. And so, I scoured the internet high and low to find the most accurate one I could, and this is the one I came up with. So, Dan, if you could... Chuck that one up for us, that'll be peachy. Jesus was staying at the home of Simeon the leper. While he was sitting at the table, a sinful woman came to him with a bottle of very expensive perfume. She took the bottle and poured the perfume on his head. Then she laid down at his feet and started crying. When she got up, she wiped her tears off his feet with her hair. The disciples were upset and they said, why this waste? The perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But Jesus said to them, the poor you will always have with you, but I will only be with you for a little while. What she has done to me is a beautiful thing. Wow, how deep was that? that was I love how Jesus is Luke Skywalker. The disciple, I think one of them is an elf from Lord of the Rings, and the other is the, I'm guessing it must be Judas, is the emperor from Star Wars. It's, there's another sermon in that just by itself. It's amazing. Anyway, uh, so this story that we find of Jesus' anointing in Bethany is actually quite a significant one. It's actually one of only 11 stories that actually make it all for Gospels. So we know it must hold some weight. There must be some meat behind it as well. And if you read the story in each of the Gospels, it actually does, there are some slight variations, but it doesn't actually detract from the, the, the whole purpose of this message. But it's worth just noting anyway, which I'll just quickly go through. So just go to the next slide. Thanks, Dan. So first of all, if you read it in Matthew, the host is Simon the leper. Uh, not a great name, but that's the one he got. I guess he had leprosy at some point. Now, I assume he no longer has leprosy because chances are if he had leprosy, he wouldn't be inviting people over his place. He would be exiled to the outskirts of society somewhere. And assuming, let's say, Jesus probably healed him of leprosy and maybe this dinner is uh, some kind of thank you gift for healing me of leprosy kind of thing. And the people that are offended, just uh, defended, offended, like up there in the uh, video that we saw, is other disciples. And so they're the ones that scoff and scold the lady. Uh, in Mark... 
Again, Simon the leper is the host, but this time it's the bystanders that are offended. And so you might think, why, why are the bystanders at this dinner? Well, uh, number one, there's no Netflix at this time of uh, creation. And so uh, people would actually go to significant dinners. The main people sit on the table, actually recline at the table in the middle of the room. And then the bystanders would actually be allowed to stand around the outside of the room and watch on, even participate in conversation every now and then. And so in, this, in um, Mark's gospel, it's the bystanders that are offended. In Luke, it, we have another Simon, but not Simon Leper. This time we have Simon the Pharisee. It's Simon the Pharisee's house that Jesus goes to in Bethany. Now, some people might think maybe it's the same person. Maybe Simon the Pharisee get, got leprosy, but I tend to not think that so much because uh, if you continue reading Luke's gospel, Simon the Pharisee is actually quite condescending to Jesus later on. Doesn't wash his feet, doesn't anoint his head with oil. There's some parallels drawn with what the woman does. And so you think if Jesus healed you of leprosy, you'd be quite thankful not trying to stitch him up a bit. So I tend to think it's a different Simon. And then finally, in John, the host is actually Lazarus, who Jesus, as we know, raised from the dead. And it's Judas Iscariot who's actually offended. Now, despite which version you're reading, what you can, we can all agree on is this is a very strange dinner. This isn't just your normal, typical, run-of-the-mill Saturday night gathering, having some people over and a glass of wine and some bread or whatever they had back then. This was a very strange group of people. So first of all, obviously, we have Jesus. So we have the Son of God incarnate in the room himself. Uh, then we have Lazarus, who, like I said, has just been raised from the dead as well. That, that's probably actually why some of the bystanders came along to actually, actually see Lazarus back alive, eating bread in action again. Uh, then we, perhaps we have uh, Simon the Pharisee. We obviously have the ragtag bunch of disciples that come along as well. Uh, we have some other Pharisees and watched by the bystanders. And then, just to make this dinner even stranger, this woman appears. This woman appears in the room, the door opens up, and she's standing there, and her face is swollen, and it's red from crying all night. Her hair is hanging out, and which goes against all social etiquette of the time. She's probably, her clothes probably aren't ironed or washed well or anything like that. And she just looks disheveled, and she just looks like... A mess, and you can imagine the the scene. And so, you know, the, uh, there'll be some music playing, there'll be some conversations, some like banter, some laughing. Uh, the servants are serving, people are drinking wine, clinking cups, and things like that. Then, it's like this woman comes in, and there's a record player that just goes, Vroom! and I don't know how record players know awkward human emotions, but <laughs> they somehow do. Record players and crickets, they somehow know awkward human emotions. So, it's everything just stops. You just imagine it just stops. And so the servants stop pouring the wine, the band stops playing, all eyes are just on this woman. And she just shuffles over slowly and just falls down at Jesus' feet and says she just weeps and cries onto his feet. Now, I've, I actually, last time I cried was on just Friday gone. I was watching The Shack with Fung. It was a good, she thought it would be a good movie for us to watch. I didn't really know what I was in for. And I've got little girls myself and it kind of hit a bit of a, heartstring in there and I was as tough as I could be and I shed a few tears but these are just some small tears that fell down they probably wouldn't have gone anywhere if I shook my head but this woman says she was bawling her tears were enough to wet Jesus feet to the point where she had to wipe his feet with her hair and so it was it was ugly crying it wasn't just a few tears it was it was severe and so if just go to the next slide Dan who is this woman actually this um picture doesn't actually do it 
justice, but it's the highest definition one I could find. And um, it, I mean, she, she doesn't look like she's because she looks like she's giving Jesus a pedicure there. Uh, this should be a dirty scene because Jesus' feet, we find out in Luke, Jesus' feet were not washed when he entered this, um, this dinner. And so Jesus' feet should be dirty. She should be just absolutely bawling her eyes out and not just doing a nice little rub there. But who was this woman? There's a lot of people that believe this woman is uh, Mary Magdalene. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, and one is in John's Gospel actually names her as Mary, but there's a lot of Marys at the time, so we don't exactly know, but it was at Lazarus's house, which is Mary's brother, and so there's a good chance this is Mary Magdalene. Whether it is or it isn't, we don't really know, and it doesn't, again, it doesn't really take away too much from the overall narrative of this passage. But if it is Mary Magdalene, there's just a few interesting lines that we can draw. You see, the first time we see Mary is when she's the woman caught in adultery and thrown at Jesus' feet. Now we see her throwing herself at Jesus' feet. And there's another time in the Bible where we read about Mary at Jesus' feet, and that's when Jesus actually is in her house again, listening to Jesus' teaching while Martha is pottering around, getting everything ready, and Martha's getting frustrated at Mary because she's sitting down listening at Jesus, sitting at his feet. And so there's a beautiful irony there that we can find. We can see that society grabbed Mary and threw her at Jesus' feet so she would get judged. But she did not find judgment there. She found forgiveness and salvation. And that's a beautiful thing. And she also found her home, just like every single one of us as well. A, a place where she's gone back to visit time and time again. And it's something amazing about that. And every time I would think about that, I would actually feel that. The amount of times I've felt the need to fall at Jesus' feet because I've just felt so awful about myself or what's going on or something like that as well. And I think if, you, if any of you have felt the weight of condemnation and then felt the freedom of forgiveness, you can exactly relate to where Mary is at, falling at Jesus' feet, worshipping him, doing whatever she can to, make, to, to anoint Jesus, to bless him, to show her Saviour how much she is thankful. Though just because Mary is this broken woman that we see in these passages, we still find that she's a bold woman. She goes into this man's world. There are no women sitting around this table. She enters into this man's world where the women are either serving or having their own meals separate to all the men. And she doesn't care what anyone thinks. It doesn't matter. She only has eyes for Jesus. And she goes over and falls at his feet. She doesn't care what is socially acceptable. The perfume she has, we, it's, it's nard or spike nard, and it, it says uh, she has a vial of 12 ounces of it. And we find out it's worth about 300 denarii, which is about the average, per, average man's yearly wage. And so this perfume is most likely her most prized possession, and the most valuable thing she owns is likely her safety net. If she was ever to run into hardship, if Lazarus was to die again, he does die at some point and is unable, to, because by sounds of Mary isn't probably um, married. And I probably should say as well, I'm just going to call this woman Mary for now on because I think I need to refer to her as a name rather than just the woman from here on in. Whether she is or isn't, again, isn't too important. Um, so she, this bottle is worth about a year's wages. And if she ever has to support herself, she can, she can sell it off and live off that for a little while longer as well. Uh, the bottle it's in is an alabaster jar, which is a white Egyptian stone uh, from Egypt, quite rare as well. 
And what's interesting is it says Mary just doesn't open the vial. It says she breaks the vial. And it's if to symbolize this is a point of no return. I'm not going to just open it, pour some out, then I can sell the rest off later. It is giving it all to Jesus, which is an amazing thing. I mean, these, these vials are, would be very precious. Women of the time would actually wear them around their necks, like a necklace, as a, show, uh, as a sign of status or, or wealth or something like that. Now, we don't know where Mary got this one from, but again, you can imagine it is her most valuable, valuable possession. Now, you can imagine, actually, I, I was going to talk about the smell, and I was actually going to buy some, some nard to bring along here so we could all smell what the room smelt like that night. But a tiny little vial about this big costs $60. And so for $60, you can just imagine what it's going to smell like. <laughs> it's like, no. Okay, so you can, but imagine the room beforehand. And so everyone's just come in. There's probably 30 to 40 men in the room. They've just been walking around in the sun, probably a day like this. There's no paved road, so it's all just probably you know, dirt roads they're walking in. It's probably a bit of a pong. Even if there's some incense in the room, there's no Lynx deodorant. There's a bit of a stench. But as soon as this alabaster jar is broken, it's like a fragrance bomb goes off in the room. And this scent, it's reserved for royalty and usually royal uh, funerals as well. And so it's a smell that you'd only be lucky enough to smell every now and then in your lifetime if you are lucky. And so you can just see the contrast with that, the room before, this silence, and then this eruption of fragrance in the room. It would be something, something else. Now, what happens? So, whether it be Judas, the Pharisees, the disciples, whoever it was, they scoff at her. They scold at her. The word used in the original text in Greek is, I'm going to try and butcher, not butcher this, imbramomai, imbramomai, which is the same word used to describe the snorting of a horse. So, you can imagine, let's say the Pharisees or the disciples just, <laughs> I can't believe what this woman's doing. Just, and you've probably got a few <laughs> this, one's my, this woman, it's a disgrace. You could sell that and give that money to the poor. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. If you put the next one up, thanks, Dan. He rebukes and says, leave, that, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want. It's almost as if Jesus is alluding to the fact that how dare you use the poor as an excuse to make yourself look good in this situation. You could help them any time you want. Chances are they probably don't. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured the perfume over my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be taught in memory of her. So Jesus not only accepts what she's done, he slaps down the people that, that scold her, that, offend, that offended her, that tried to rebuke her and push her down and say, this is not your place. Now, something really significant that we find here, which is really interesting. Out of all the people in this room, so we have Jesus, some of his closest friends like Lazarus. We have the disciples, his students. We have God's, the teachers of the law. And some of the bystanders were probably followers of Jesus as well. Out of everyone in this room, not one, not one except for Mary, realized that Jesus' death is just around the corner. Everyone else was there celebrating, partying, talking, drinking. Mary was the only one that saw it coming. And her emotions, her body language showed it. She's the only one that had that amazing insight. 
And, we, and Jesus actually acknowledges that when he says, uh, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Jesus knew his death was coming. He was absolutely sure. This was only two days before he was arrested in Gethsemane. It's not far b- before that. And so he knew it was coming. And there's something interesting about Jesus as well. If I knew my death was only two days away, I would probably be a little bit withdrawn, a little bit melancholy, a little bit you know, self-conscious and, and afraid. But Jesus still chose to go out there, preach to others, share the word, love other people and not retreat away like any of us would. Even Peter, Jesus' prize student. Uh, if you go back to Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter directly, I, Peter, I am going to die. And what's Peter say? He's like, nah, no you're not. And in my mind, I can just feel Jesus' frustration with Peter. In my mind, Jesus gets those angry Kermit the Frog arms and he's just like, Peter, get behind me, Satan. He just gets so frustrated. Peter doesn't get it even when he's told loud and clear, I'm going to die, yet Mary gets it. There's something special there about that insight. And we can draw three contrasts here between Mary and the scoffers, the disciples, whoever they might be. You just go, yep, to that one. Firstly, we have Mary's attention. It is wholly and solely upon Christ. She doesn't care what anyone else thinks. There's no one else in the room as far as she's concerned. She's going straight to Jesus. Yet the disciples have turned the issue away from Christ and focusing it onto the poor. Now, that's not to say that there's nothing wrong with caring about the poor. In fact, yes, that is what we should do. But it's not the primary focus and concern of this passage. Next, Mary, Mary's motivation. She was motivated by her devotion to her Saviour. She wanted to sacrifice something to her Saviour, to show her love and thankfulness to Jesus. Yet the disciples were motivated by greed and jealousy. Their, their hearts were calloused to, uh, towards Jesus' word. And then Mary's actions quietly pointed people to Jesus. And so while she was doing this horrendous act, all eyes, you can bet, were actually on Jesus. What is he going to do? How is Jesus going to handle this situation? And they think if he, if Jesus is really a prophet, he's really the son of God, he would know what kind of woman this is. Yet the disciples, they're all looking at each other. Their eyes aren't focused on Jesus. Their eyes are on each other. Just before in, um, uh, actually a couple of verses, uh, chapters later in Luke 9, is when they're having the argument, who will be the greatest disciple? Who will be sitting on Jesus' right-hand side when the kingdom comes? And so it's not about looking at Jesus, it's about looking at their own self-gain. And that's an ugliness that erupted over into Mary. And so the big question I want to, I guess, ask tonight is, where do you find yourself in this picture? Where do you find yourself? Are you in the shoes of Mary, coming, throwing yourself before Jesus? Or are you sitting at the table with the Pharisees, with the disciples, looking at that display, thinking, oh, and just scoff, and <laughs> scoffing? Chances are, in different parts of our life, we've probably been in, in, in both parts. If we have been in Mary's shoes, a good question for us to ask ourselves is, when have you given your most prized possession to God? And what is it? Is it your time? Is it your family? Is it money? Is it your career? Is it your security? When have you given what's most valuable to you over to God? And the question I want us to actually discuss tonight is from the point of view of the disciples. When have you lost yourself, uh, when, your sense of wonder in Christ? So, this one. When have you lost your sense of wonder in God? 
Because when we first become Christian, we have a lot of wonder in God. It's amazing. And we want to run to the hilltops and, and shout Jesus' praise and things like that. But then it kind of dies off a bit. And we see the people that are, you know, on fire for Jesus and things like that. It's just like, ah, oh, bless them. They love Jesus a bit too much. That kind of thing. And, and our, our passion, our wonder for God starts to cool off a bit, doesn't it? And so if you still have it, fantastic. How do you keep it? How do you keep it fresh? And if you have lost, if it's feeling a bit stale, how do we get that back? And so, just in the, with the people around you, let's just have a five-minute chat, and I'd love to hear some of the thoughts that we have here tonight. Is that cool? Awesome. Go. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, who's got something that I'd like to share? How about from the crowd that still feels passionate, and how do they keep it fresh? How do you keep it fresh? I really want to know. <laughs> yeah, great. We talked a lot about um, nature and creation and how we can just be kept in wonder of God and the amazing things that he creates for us and sometimes how we can lose our wonder in him because we get caught up in just life and what we're doing and going to and from and we can miss those things that he's created for us like the stars or, you know, even simple flowers and um, yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of us found that to keep it fresh is helpful to see um, nature and beauty and what God's creating and to take a step back and stop rushing around so much. Who relates with that? Finding God in nature just keeps it fresh, in the freshness of nature. Well, if you go on the silent walk at the dawn service, <laughs> you can enjoy some of that as well. Great. Who else would like to share on that side of the question? Keeping it fresh. Yeah. We were just talking about how being involved in the body of believers <laughs> and not being isolated really helps. I don't know, kind of like iron sharpening iron, but you kind of champion, champion each other to see God in different ways. So Pete and I were just talking about how the, the Lent group that we've been doing every week has really been inspiring us to get to know God better. Because you... St- you start to see God through different lenses that other, other people share how they see God. So it, it kind of opens up, broadens your perspective. So that's been keeping it fresh. Yeah. So seeing from other people's points of view, I mean, we, we see through our eyes quite well, but when you get someone else's, the same, exactly the same thing, something completely different, it, yeah, again, makes it a, a thing you might have known since Sunday school, see him again fresh again, which is cool. Anyone else on the fresh side? Is that a hand up or is that sweat? <laughs> Nature too. And babies? Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, my wife has a baby. <laughs> um, we, we talked about people in our lives and the community we're in and the ch- people you, we choose to be surrounded by or influenced by or spend our time with and how we're sharing God with them. That can keep it fresh too. Okay. Uh, so how about uh, on the other side? How do we get it back? We, we've lost it. And something that I'm sure we all, cher- we, we all want, we all want to pursue it, but it's sometimes just so hard, sometimes it just feels so stale. How do we get that back? Michael? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking a little louder. 
Yeah, okay. I agree with what you're saying about nature too. We both agree and how we're sharing our love and faith and the premonitions of Christ and the old saying, stop and smell the roses. And like you said, um, how do we get it back? Well, I found it back by a bit of a testimony I've given here through a lot of my trials and tribulations and the old saying, walking through the valley of the death, not fearing no evil and all that. But it was a pretty big valley. It was a pretty big law, sort of along... Hearing no evil at the practice, practice like even doing university course at home even, plus all the other courses I've done, I had to stop and realise to get more into praise and worship, make more time, give up more time, and I felt my spirit confirmed with the Lord. Give up time, give up time, we even have to walk outside in the freezing cold some nights, enjoying the nature, realising it's not really that cold, it's probably all in my mind, but shivering a bit, but still I'm giving thanks to the Lord of God, maybe it's meant to be from the Lord of God, so walking all around... So, so, but being active in, 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 in um, doing, you know, work, uh, work in the kingdom and, and talking to other people out, so if you're active in it. Anyone else? How do we get it back? How do we get our mojo back? Uh, I thought, actually, Carolyn really talked about that last week in my thinking when she was saying that um, if we feel we've lost something, we just sit with God and we tell him and we say, Father, I've lost my passion, I don't want to pray, and just to be really authentic with God and bring it to him, ask him to help us get it back, because it is, you kind of really can't do it in your own thinking processes. Anyone else? We had a little discussion about what does it mean to get it back, and why do you want to get it back, and what is it exactly that we want to return to? Um, and talked a little bit about um, flatness or maturity in your faith, like um, especially if you've had a really sort of mountaintop experience in coming to Jesus, maybe you will never actually get that back, and maybe that's okay. Maybe that flood of emotion and that sort of stark realisation about who Jesus is and who you are, maybe that was a bit of a threshold, and you just you keep pushing forward sort of much like a marriage you know you are infatuated and it's extraordinary and then you get married and then it's you know like it's wonderful in other ways actually i feel like marriage often gets this like oh it's the grind it's the ball and chain but it's not in my experience it's limited though it is seven years in it's just been wonderful in different ways um and so we sort of had a little bit of a chat about okay, maybe there is flatness and maybe you do have to sort of get it back. Or are you going into a different season of faithfulness and is God showing you other things about himself? Um, And maybe we can't always be in that ecstatic state of wonder all the time and maybe that's okay. Yeah, so it's not. So you're saying it's not about get, having the whole whiz bang thing all the time. I suppose that yeah, that would be exhausting. But it's <laughs> <laughs> I'm only one man. <laughs> but you're right. There is something else special there that starts to grow as well. As long as that special thing is growing. So I think when you talk about marriage, I think about my marriage with with uh, Fung. And even though it's not when we first started going out, you know, it was the Fireworks? <laughs> Gotta watch out. It's, it's all the, the amazing thing, the honeymoon period, and all that kind of stuff. But now it's 
13 years, 13 years. <laughs> well, 18 going out. Yeah, not, not since being married. I know that one. But Fung knows me better than anyone else on the face of this planet. And that's something I just can't be replaced by another person. I just can't find another wife that's going to know that me that intimately. And so, I guess, yeah, you're right. It's the same you know, with God as well. It might not be the, that honeymoon period the whole time, but there's that deepness. And so it's not so much, I guess, the wideness, but the depth of that relationship, that love. Just some framework for what Beck was saying. I just was mowing my lawn listening to a podcast yesterday. A guy was talking about how there's these three kind of boxes of life. The first being sense of order. The second being disorder. And the third being reorder. And that there's no shortcuts from order to reorder. But it's this motion that we take, this journey that we take, and find our way. And all these things that we're talking about are part of the ways that we find our way along in the midst of when order goes out the window, when what we thought we knew no longer works. So. Thank you. Very wise. <laughs> Wasn't yours. Anyone else? Before? Yeah, oh, the other cart ride. Yep. I, I think uh, a sense of wonder is something along the pathway to intimacy. Um, I think it's a progression, so I don't think they're the same. I think it's along the pathway to, to intimacy with, with Father or with Jesus. Yeah, when I think about um, wonder, and this is actually something I was... I, the other day I was just talking to my, my dad about this because I always like to bounce different kinds of ideas off him. He's always got some good insight. And he, to him, wonder, to him makes me think of childhood. As, one, as children, there's so much wondrous about the world. You step outside, we get, you go for a bushwalk, oh, wow, a gum nut, look at it. <laughs> it's amazing. And then after you've seen a million of the things, <laughs> they just get stuck in your shoes and it's no longer wondrous. But there's something innocent and childlike about that that wonder and God and Jesus does say you know we need to be born again become children again and so there is something beautiful about that and and yeah, like I was saying before I guess it can be that that intimacy like Al was saying as well that that depth as well but I think there's also a part of wonder that we can still keep if we keep looking at the new however we do that through nature through other people's perspectives and other things that we've spoken about already but it's interesting to, to see how do we make sure that as we lose that sense of wonder, it's not just being replaced with the, the mundane. How, how do we know it's, it's going deeper as well? And for me, it comes a lot down to how we gauge where our pride is at, our own ego. I've been thinking a lot about ego and pride over the last few months because I've had an experience where my pride was absolutely destroyed on me. And so some of you may have known a few months ago, I had a, a kidney stone. Actually, I still have that kidney stone. It still hasn't passed. It's a time bomb waiting to go off. And it could hit me like, like that and I could just drop right now. But let's hope it doesn't. <laughs> and so a few months ago, I had a kidney stone. So I didn't know what it was. I've never had anything like that at all. I was driving um, to work, dropping the kids off to school, and I had this massive cramping around my midsection going around to the small of my back. And I had no idea what it was. It's the worst pain I've ever felt. And they say it's worse than childbirth. And I've got two kids. It's far worse than childbirth. <laughs> and... 
I managed to get the kids, drop the kids off to school, and I, I went to work, and I had no idea what was going on. And the admin girl looked at me and goes, what's wrong with you? I goes, I don't know, I've got this cramping inside me. She goes, oh, I had something like that as well. I thought I had to go to hospital. Uh, but ended up just being wind pain. So I was really glad I didn't go to hospital, because if I did and it was just wind pain, that would be really embarrassing. And so I was like, yeah, you're right, it's probably just wind pain. I'll just toughen up and <laughs> stick it out. So I put up with this for two hours in my office. I went to the bathroom to try and pass some wind. There was no wind, <laughs> nothing passed. And it hit me even worse there, and I just rolled off the toilet in the fetal position onto the floor, you know, pants still down around my ankles. And in that moment, I lost all pride. I did not care what I had to do to make this pain stop. It just had to go. I was this close to yelling out. The closest office to the bath, men's bathroom is my boss's office, the GM of the hotel, the, the head, head guy. And I wouldn't have cared at all the slightest bit. If he walked in and saw me with my pants down and my bum out, I would not have cared. All my pride would, would have gone. Now, don't say, you know, pride always in the egotistical way, but a lot of our identity is, uh, is wrapped up in our pride, like it, just the general respect. I, res I think I'm a decent person. I respect you. If I go to shake your hand and you spit in my face, my pride's going to be hurt. I think I deserve that kind of respect. And so there's a lot of our identity is actually wrapped up in our pride, yet it is, I've, for me, I found out it is so fleeting. And so how much of our, our identity is wrapped up in that kind of stuff compared to how much is wrapped up in Jesus, in God, in, in the wonder like we've been talking about? It's easy in this passage, these passages that we've been going through, to demonise the disciples. It's easy to say they were completely in the wrong, they completely missed the message and Jesus had to slap them down, put them in their place. But the good news for them, and I guess the good news for us, for anyone feeling a bit stale, a bit lethargic about uh, the word and things like that is that as we can see the disciples made amazing growth and had massive leaves in humility we know all the disciples I think except for John actually died horrific deaths defending Jesus word and preaching the word of Christ and the fact that this story appears in all four gospels shows the humility of Christ as well because we're putting this woman Mary up here and the disciples down here. And to put a woman over the man in that time is humiliating. So th this is actually a, Jew a morning Jewish prayer that I found. It says, and this is what Jewish men would say every time they wake up in the morning, Praise God, who created me a human and not a beast, a man and not a woman, an Israelite and not a Gentile, circumcised, not uncircumcised, and free and not a slave. And so we're putting the woman the woman's status on the same level as Gentiles, as beasts and things like that. That's, that shows the, the, the level. And so for a woman to place above the disciples shows how far they have actually come. And so as we move into Easter, I just want to encourage you to think about that wonder, that excitement, that, that beauty of God. Because when we, Easter is the most significant part of the Bible for us Christians. All of creation before the crucifixion looked towards the cross. And since the cross, all creation now looks back at the cross. The cross is the climax of human existence. It's, a, it's, it's that peak that we always look to, forwards or back. And when we think about the cross, if we really grasp the gravity of it, the true wonder of it, we should be in tears when we think about it. It should, it should wrench our hearts to think what Jesus went through for us, our sinful selves. And so again, I encourage you, let's think about that cross, the wonder, 
less scoffing, more stargazing. Cool. I'll finish with a quick word of prayer. God, just thank you so much. Easter's coming up. Will we remember what you've done for us? I pray that we can just spend some time, even if it's just five minutes out of our busy, kid-ridden lives, to just dwell on the cross, what you've done for us, and just capture some of that wonder, some of that childlike innocence, that Mary-like impact where it just makes us want us to fall to our knees and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are a God that loves us and would do this for us as we move forwards in our lives and just stave off those feelings of normality in our hearts. Amen. Wonderful.